0: Our scripture reading today comes from Joshua 6. Lots of verses. I'll let you read those. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout nor make your voice heard. "'Neither shall any word go out of your mouth "'until the day that I tell you to shout. "'Then you shall shout.' "'So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, "'going about it once. "'And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. "'And the second day they marched around the city once "'and returned into the camp. "'So they did for six days.' On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction." Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city." But Rahab the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Well, thank you. If you've been with us, uh, you know one of the challenges of Old Testament narratives is uh, cutting down these long portions of scripture to uh, ones that are manageable, uh, but also tell the story. So, Thank you for hanging in there. If you don't know me, my name is Jeff Skipper. I'm the church planning apprentice here at Church of the Redeemer. Um, We're in the gathering phase of things, and it's going well. So uh, I just uh, encourage you to pray for us and keep your eyes open on what's going on and events. And uh, come talk to me if you have questions and stuff. Uh, Well, this morning, uh, in case you've missed recently, uh, we've been working through the history of the Old Testament. And now we've reached the story about the land in the book of Joshua. So again, we've seen God choose Israel We've seen him deliver them from Egypt, perform all these miracles in the wilderness. We've seen that the first generation died because they were disobedient and uh, faithless. And now the second generation has just crossed over the Jordan River and into the promised land. It's been a long time coming, right? They're in the land of Canaan. And Joshua 5 has this beautiful description at the very end. It says, the manna ceased, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate Of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And you know that fruit tasted good after 40 years of eating just manna in the wilderness. They tasted the fruit of Canaan, and you know it tasted good. Also, last week at the end of chapter 5, we saw that Israel reached a city on the edge of the promised land called Jericho. And it was there that Joshua, uh, right outside of Jericho, Joshua is Israel's new leader after Moses. He had this amazing encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. And last week we saw that this was the Lord himself. I grew up listening to a lot of Elvis Presley i going to take a nod at my dad there for that. Uh, and, and I always heard one of the gospel CDs was Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. There was a song on there. Uh, you need to look up that version. It's probably the best one. Uh, but you may have grew up in Sunday school uh, listening to that song, and the walls came tumbling down. You guys remember that. And, and truth be told, as we will see, that the Battle of Jericho wasn't really won in the fighting that took place there. Uh, the real Battle of Jericho occurred in this encounter with the Lord, That's where the battle was won, when Joshua submitted to the Lord's plan, and Israel was obedient to his instructions, because remember, when Joshua seen this commander of the Lord's army with this drawn sword, he actually boldly just ran up to him, and he said, are you for us or against us? Whose side are you on, anyways? Joshua ran up to him, and you guys remember how the Lord responded, right? No. That's all he said. Don't you love being able to respond like that? Whose side are you on? No. That's how the Lord responded. And so what he was saying was, Joshua, you've got it all backwards. The question isn't, am I for you? The question is, are you for me? Or as Drew put it last week, he says, I don't serve you, you serve me. You don't command me, I command you. And at that point, we see Joshua fell on his face in worship. He, He hit the ground. And rather than getting the Lord on his plan and agenda, he got on the Lord's plan, and it was there that he was made ready to take the land that God had actually given into his hand. Now, the city of Jericho was a huge problem of Israel. It was heavily fortified. It was heavily defended. It was a pretty small city. The scripture says in verse 1 of chapter 6 that it was shut up inside and outside, meaning that the city was actually barred in the front and in the back, which shows that they were in fear We've already read that their hearts melted when they heard that Israel was coming. But the city was almost an impregnable fortress for the very purpose of preventing enemy penetration into Canaan. I mean, it was a key city to take because Jericho was right on the edge of the land. So Jericho had to be taken first in order to take the rest of the land. And the Lord had set Jericho apart as an object of his judgment. Uh, The scripture says that the entire city was to be devoted to him. And that Hebrew term is haram. And it means to devote to destruction as an offering to the Lord. Now one reason for this is because there could be no pagan influence left in the land. The book of Deuteronomy, the law, is very clear on this, that no pagan influence should be left in the land unless uh, they lead Israel astray to follow these false gods that would eventually lead to their own judgment, which was exile, which we actually see happen in this story eventually. And also, let's not overlook the fact that the people of Jericho were wicked and they were godless. Twice in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the Lord tells Israel, he says, hey, it's not because that you're super righteous that I'm going to give you this land. It's because they are wicked that I'm going to drive these wicked people out of this land and then fulfill my promise to you. It's because of their wickedness. Now, back in chapter 2, we read that Joshua had sent spies to the land of Jericho. And while they were there, they were taken in by this Canaanite prostitute. Her name was Rahab. And for their protection, they promised her, they said, when we come back to take the city, we're going to spare you and spare your family. And while they were there, she shared some interesting information. She said that the people of Jericho had actually heard the news of the one true God. Back in Joshua chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Rahab told the spies, she said this, For we have heard. She says, we've heard what the Lord's done. We, we heard how he dried up the waters of the Red Sea. We heard how you guys went out there and took care of those two kings and devoted them to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Every man. And then she said, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Listen, Jericho had heard of everything that the Lord had done and yet they refused to repent. And this statement also shows us the amazing faith of Rahab. Hebrews 11 says that, that, that Rahab had faith. And so that shows us that this isn't about outsiders and insiders. Because although Rahab was not an Israelite, she is spared and saved by her faith. And we've also seen that just being an Israelite didn't mean that you were safe from God's judgment. I mean, the entire first generation was judged because of their lack of faith and their disobedience. And we even see in the next chapter that some of the Israelites are judged because of their disobedience. So, if you separate their wickedness and and, and the wickedness and unbelief of Jericho from the actual judgment that Jericho receives, this isn't going to make sense. You won't understand this, it'll seem unfair. But if you have a healthy biblical understanding of God's holiness and what happens when the holiness of God meets sin, you will understand judgment and the justice of God. And essentially, this whole story is just a foreshadowing of the final judgment. Because remember, back in Genesis 15, when the Lord made the covenant with Abram, uh, he, he said this was going to happen. He said, Abram, your descendants are going to be taken into slavery for about 400 years, but they're eventually going to come back to this land of Canaan. And it's only when the iniquity of the Amorites are full. When, when that happens, uh, then you're going to come back and you're going to take this land. And that time is now. The Amorites were one of the main population groups of Canaan, and their wickedness has reached the point uh, to which they are ripe for judgment. So the sobering truth is that these people were not innocent. They had heard, they were wicked, and also that God is a God of justice. And so after crossing the river and Joshua having this encounter with the Lord, Israel's right outside of Jericho, and it's time for conquest. And so if you see in your worship folder, I just have three points this morning. The strange battle plan, the faithful obedience, and the shout of victory. What's the plan of attack on Jericho? The strange battle plan. If you look in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 6, we just read, uh, it's believed that this is actually a continuation of the end of chapter 5, that the commander of the Lord's army is talking to Joshua, and he gives Joshua the battle plan. And so Joshua receives it, and then he turns around in verses 6, 7, and 10, and he calls the priests together, and he says, Okay, thank you for the instructions, commander of the Lord's army. I'm going to turn around to my people and now give them these instructions. And he faithfully does that. So just to recap, if you kind of got lost in those instructions as we read the Scripture, or maybe you've forgotten or, or just never heard, let's recap what the battle plan is, okay? The plan is to have seven priests blow trumpets while they walk around the city one time every day for six days. And they're going to walk out in front of the Ark of the Covenant, right? This signified, this was this box with things in it, and it, and it signified God's presence in the middle, in the center of their formation. And there's going to be armed men out in front of them and behind them. And then the rest of the army follows in complete silence. Because remember, not a word was to be spoken. And then on the seventh day... They're going to walk around this city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets, and then everybody's going to shout with a great shout, and then the walls will fall down. Seriously? I mean, does that sound kind of silly to you? I mean, those sound like pretty strange instructions. Would you have done it? Would you have obeyed those battle plans? I mean, think about how weird those instructions are. Just marching around the city in silence every day with absolutely nothing happening. You can imagine how foolish they looked out there just blowing their little horns and walking in silence. I mean, it could have been a little creepy after a while. I mean, if you come march around my house in silence, it's going to weird me out a little bit after a while. A little disconcerting, some type of psychological tactic, I don't know. But overall, please don't do that, by the way. Uh, That will really scare me. Y'all gonna meet up after church walking around my house in silence. Uh, Overall, as a plan for battle, it looks pretty dumb. I mean, this just isn't how battle's done. I'm thinking let's rush the walls, let's throw some ladders up there, get a few of you guys to be the first wave. Some of y'all get taken out, right? Get our spears and arrows or whatever we need, uh, slingshots, and get into the city and let's do work. Let's get to work. I'm thinking something along those lines, right? But God doesn't work this way. This isn't God's way. So what does this tell us about the way God works? Well, first of all, God must not think like us. Because this is not what we would have come up with, nor would we have thought this was a great plan. If we received these instructions, we wouldn't have said, that's brilliant. Why why didn't we think of that in the first place? Absolutely not. God must not think like us. And secondly, from this, we learn that God works through weakness. This looks like a weak plan. It looks like pure foolishness. You can imagine the people of Jericho on top of the walls just mocking Israel, yelling insults at them, probably throwing things at them. Uh, That that happens in the VeggieTales version, which is probably historically accurate. Uh, Jesus' storybook Bible says it too, so that counts for something. You can imagine that's probably happening on top of these walls. So this seemingly ineffective battle plan tells us that God fights for his people, and he wants that to be very clear in victory, that there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, that it's him, not us, who won the battle. And time and time again in Scripture, we see this. We see verses that say, hey, you prepare the horse for battle, but the battle belongs to who? The Lord. The Lord. In 2 Chronicles 20, they're going to battle. And we see the Lord say, you don't need to fight this battle. You just stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And again, in Zechariah 4, 6, the scripture says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We could go on and on how that theme runs through scripture. And here at Jericho, the battle plan is one that looks like weakness. And yet Israel is overwhelmingly victorious in this weak plan. But in the next battle, after Jericho, we find in chapter 7, we see Israel get a little arrogant. There's actually sin in the camp that they don't take care of. They trust in their own strength rather than moving forward in obedient weakness, relying on the Lord. They don't even inquire of the Lord before they go to battle. And they're presumptuous and they go up and they get beat down and pushed back initially. So this tells us that the Lord, for his glory and his own purposes moves us out in weakness. He even puts us in vulnerable positions in life where it looks like the chips are completely stacked against us, and yet that's when he can work through us best and be praised most for victory. He puts us in weak positions, in vulnerable positions. Maybe that's where you're at now, or you feel that way in some area of your life, and uh, based on Scripture, that may be a good thing. Maybe that's right where God wants you. His ways are very strange to our sinful eyes. And this plan of attack is evidence of that. So, so knowing that this is how God works, that these are his ways, here's the question. What does it take in order to obey the strange ways of God and to be content with being weak so that it can be clear that it's God's strength and not ours that's responsible for victory? How can we move out into weakness knowing that with these strange ways? And the simple answer is, Is faith, faithful obedience. Despite how bizarre these plans may have seemed, Israel obeys. In chapter 6, verses 11 through 15, the author, without mentioning any occurrence of complaining, questioning, or grumbling, which had been so characteristic of the first generation in any type of faith situation, it says in verse 11, Joshua caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once, and they came into the camp and they spent the night. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and then verse 14, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, and so they did for six days. So again, they're told to march around the city in complete silence for seven days, blowing horns, carrying a box, and then shouting really loud at the end, and they obeyed. I don't know about you, but after day one, day two, three, day four, day five, day six, I have a feeling that I would have been the guy way in the back, dragging my feet a little bit, mumbling under my breath. This is a joke. I mean, after day four or five, six, can you imagine? What are we really doing here? This is a waste. Let's call a timeout. Let's huddle back up, guys. Uh, this is really strange. I don't think this is going to work. What are we really doing here? And without the eyes of faith and trust and understanding how God works, that will be our attitude in following his ways. So this leads me to ask you, how do you react When nothing changes after you've been obedient for a long time to what God has asked? When nothing seems to be happening and you feel like you're doing all the right things and yet you still see no evidence of change and you feel like you've been obedient to what God has called you to, do you you get cynical? Do you get hopeless or apathetic and just give up? Or do you get bitter towards God? After walking around the city for six days, I wonder if not even one stone began to shake in Jericho. Not a latch, not a screw, not even a chain began to clink around and rattle a little bit. Nothing rattled, nothing fell. There was no sign of the walls of Jericho falling after six days. I mean, surely if there was ever uh, the the time to be tempted to lose hope and say, you know what, They're right up there on top of these walls. I mean, what are we really doing down here? This is a waste of time. We do this a lot in life when we obey and we don't see change, don't we? We've been obedient for a long time and nothing changes. Do we not slip into those attitudes? Because we're sinful, we focus on our circumstances and our sufferings rather than what God is doing, and that quenches our faith in God, and it often leads us to becoming cynical about life and following God. When, when nothing happens, we, we get cynical about God actually working. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, which we're pretty familiar with around here, he said this. He said, cynicism questions the active goodness of God on our behalf. It creates a numbness towards life. It's critical, it's passive, without hope, it leaves us doubting. It shuts down our hearts and we just show up for life going through the motions. Some days it's just hard to even get out of our pajamas. It's like the guy in the back of the procession walking around Jericho, kicking the dirt and grumbling, just going through the motions. After six days. You see, cynicism says nothing's going to happen anyway. I mean, what's the point? And if we get to that point in life, first of all, we may not even pray at all. But if we do pray, we won't really be engaged and invested because we don't think anything's actually happening or will happen. We won't support or join certain ministries in the church because we'll cynically think, well, it's not like we can really change anything anyways. I mean, we can sit down and we can try to start a new mercy ministry, but it's not like we can really make a dent in the overwhelming amount of wrong that needs to be made right. We won't pursue or enter into certain relationships with people because we've already given up on them. I mean, we'll say things like, oh, they'll never change. I know how they are. I'm not even going to waste my time. Have you ever felt that way with anybody in your life? That's the paralyzing effect of cynicism that results from a lack of faith. And oftentimes it starts by saying things like, man, I've been doing all the right things. (laughs) I've been reading my Bible, going to church, and so on. Why isn't God doing anything? Why isn't God providing? Why isn't he healing or moving or saving? I'm doing my part. Why is God not holding up his end of the deal? And when we think that way, we're only being obedient in order to get our way from God, right? We're, we're not obeying uh, just out of faith for his will to be done. We're more like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And the guard to falling prey to this deadly attitude is submission to God out of faith, that's grounded in his good character and his promises, only then will we submit to the strange ways of God, only then will we submit to what we're experiencing in life and actually persevere through our circumstances and sufferings, believing that God is working out all things for the good of those who love him. You see, faith sees circumstances through the lens of God's goodness. It sees all of its circumstances through the lens of God's goodness. And when we do that, we're enabled to persevere and not lose hope. Because by faith, Israel obeyed the strange battle plans. They persevered when everything seemed hopeless because their obedience was grounded by faith in the goodness of God. You see, truly, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because without faith, God's goodness is overshadowed in our eyes. By our circumstances, and we become cynical and paralyzed from obeying him. Are are your circumstances overshadowing the goodness of God right now somewhere in your life? Faith produces obedience to the strange ways of God, and it guards us from slipping into cynicism, and it also fuels us to persevere in obedience in spite of no visible results. I mean, this applies to so many areas of our lives. As I prepared this week, I couldn't help but be convicted as I thought about people I've reached out, reached out to even recently. And I feel like uh, one, of the, one of the first main, ta- main times in my life I've suffered a lot of rejection. You know, I, I feel like I've marched around them five or six times with the gospel or even just trying to build a relationship with them and not one piece of their walls have began to move. And I'm tempted to or I actually do fall into despair and cynicism. Have you ever experienced that with family members or loved ones or people who don't know the love of God or people who just don't seem to have any use for Jesus? It's so easy to lose hope and give up when you feel like you've been doing exactly what God wants you to do for such a long time and nothing's changed. And our battle is to remember that there are things happening that we can't see. I mean, that's what faith is. It's an assurance and conviction that things are really happening that we can't see. So where does this hit home from you? I mean, what does it look like for you to be faithful and persevere in obedience by faith in areas of your life where you've reached the point where it seems pointless, it seems vain? Or what relationship of yours does nothing seem to work and you're tempted to give up? Maybe you've been praying for a child or a family member for years to come to the faith and there's been no change. Or maybe it's, it's loving someone who refuses to love you or even be kind to you back, and this hurts you, and you're tired of feeling hurt, and so you just want to stop putting forth effort into that relationship. Maybe you've been struggling with an ailment or an illness for years, and you've prayed to be relieved of it, and nothing has changed. Maybe you're in a job or you're in search of a job, and things just aren't going the way you had planned, or they haven't gone the way you had hoped, and you're just about to give up. Or maybe you stay at home with young children and you feel like you tell them the same thing a thousand times a day and you never see change and you're so discouraged. I thought I'd get some amens from that one. From some of I'll go preach this at Mops. There'll be revival over there. They'll be up going after it, right? Or maybe you just feel lost and completely overwhelmed in life and you're coming to terms with the reality of suffering and how hard life can really be. The call here is to persevere in obedience by faith to what God has called you to, believing that none of his good promises will fail. Because Hebrews tells us that faith is the conviction of things not seen. Friends, Christians, listen, be assured, God is working. Though not even a pebble fell from the walls of Jericho for six days, God was working. Our job is to be obedient and persevere in faith in these areas of our lives, and that time will come where we will see the fruit of God's work and our faithfulness. Maybe in this life, maybe not. Wait, what, Jeff? Will you repeat that last line? Maybe in this life we'll see the fruit of God's work, what he's doing that we can't see in our faithfulness, maybe not, because ultimately we're seeking a far country, Hebrews tells us. We are seeking a city made without hands, Hebrews tells us, that will be reached in a time after this, and it may not be until then where we see any fruit of our perseverance in these areas, but there will be times when we will see it now in this life. And so it was with Israel at Jericho. Because Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. They persevered in faith, and the walls came tumbling down, just like we sang about. So again, this is a call for us to persevere obediently in challenging relationships and in our sufferings. A call to hold fast to the promises of God and still go on and praise him, even if there seems to be no fruit on the vine. And you keep checking. Persevere. Israel obeyed for six days and they still had not been able to shout. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the past, said on this idea, he said, Your time for shouting has not yet come. God has his reasons for making us wait. God has his reasons for making us wait. Do you believe that? Much of the Christian life, listen, is simply waiting, being silent, and obediently trusting God. Much of the Christian life is that. Waiting, being silent, and obediently trusting God. And that's what we see Israel do for six days at Jericho. But there is a greater, much greater story to be told, in the shout of victory. How does this story point to the work of Jesus? You remember the Canaanite prostitute Rahab that I mentioned earlier? She was saved in the battle of Jericho, and eventually time shows us and tells us that she would come into the family of Israel, and one of her descendants would be none other than the Messiah. Jesus, the longed-for one that the entire Old Testament pointed to, she, the foreign prostitute, made it into the most famous list of genealogy in all of history. This would not have been our plan for the line of genealogy for the Messiah, but it was God's plan. More evidence that God uses what is weak and what the world would call foolish to do great things. This is how God works. So, how does this story point us even more? The story of Jericho point us more to the work of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, we believe all of the Old Testament points to and was preparatory for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And some things, more than others, are very explicit. They, they remind us of Jesus very explicitly. And as I prepared this week, uh, there were three ways in this story reminded me of Jesus. The silence, the shout, and The victory. The silence, like Israel walked around Jericho six times in complete silence for six days, so Jesus did much of the same as he encircled the walls of death. Listen, after Jesus was arrested, we see this amazing obedience to suffering according to the will of God. And there is an interesting and almost mysterious silence about Jesus as he makes his way to his battle on the cross. Isaiah 53, which prophesies about the Messiah, says in verse 7, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, and so we see Jesus do very much the same as he's walking to the cross. 1 Peter 2 says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He silently and obediently persevered in the face of insult and harm. The gospel accounts tell us this. In Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14, he was accused by the chief priests and elders, but he gave no answer. I love this. And then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer. Not even to a single charge so that the governor was amazed. Mark 15 says, but Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was amazed. Luke 23 says, Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus was obeying his father. He didn't need to defend himself. He was approaching his greatest Work to break down the walls of sin and death on the cross, and it was as if he was encircling death and sin and hell itself in silence, waiting on God, just like Israel did at Jericho. And not only do we see a silence, but we see a shout. On the seventh day after encircling Jericho seven times, Israel shouted with a great shout, and the walls of Jericho fell down. And so very much the same way, As Jesus hung on the cross, he too gave a great shout before his last breath. Matthew 27, 50 says Jesus cried out with a loud voice and then yielded up his spirit. Mark 15, Jesus uttered a loud cry and then breathed his last. And John in chapter 19, verse 30, tells us what he said. Jesus received the sour wine and he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, just as Israel gave a great shout, At the end of their silence, so Jesus gave a great shout of, It is finished at the end of his work, and he died. So we see a mysterious silence. We see a great shout. So what then happened? Matthew tells us in 27, right after 27.50, that Jesus shouted. In verse 51, the immediate effect was, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. Does that remind you of anything? A long, mysterious silence followed by a great shout leading to rocks splitting. It sounded a lot to me as I studied a lot like what happened at Jericho. You see, as Jesus went to battle on the cross, the walls of the city of sin, death, and hell began to shake and split and fall down. And even the Roman soldier beside the cross yelled out truly, This was the Son of God. And this is good news for us because we are powerless. Against these walls. This is the gospel of what Jesus Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. He was faithful and persevered even when we were lost and blind and stubborn and wandering into death. He sought us and brought us home even at the cost of his own life. He battled death for us by obediently dying for us. And by faith in him, listen, the hard walls of our hearts fall down and we can come as it is into the promised land and taste the fruit of eternal life. But to go even further, look at how this work was accomplished. Look at this battle plan. Is this whole idea of using what seems to be foolish means and foolish plans to accomplish great things for God, as we've discussed today in relation to Jericho, is that not seen most clearly in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember in our assurance of pardon that we read that the cross, that is, God's battle plan to wage war against death itself is folly. The cross is complete foolishness to those who are perishing, just like the battle plan of Israel was probably foolishness to those in Jericho. Jesus was beaten, mocked, and executed on a, Roman's, a Roman cross, a criminal's death. It seemed to be the epitome of weakness, and yet it was God's ordained means to accomplish salvation. And so to us who are being saved. Christ crucified, what the world calls Folly, the epitome of weakness. Christ crucified is the power of God unto salvation. And so just a couple things as I close. Given that this is the way God works and the way his kingdom advances through weakness by means that are strange and mysterious, how are we to live? We're to live a life of repentance and faith in Jesus. Out of a weakness that is reliant upon God and his strength persevering in obedience. God's kingdom His kingdom advances through what the world calls foolishness, through weakness, through dying for others, through putting others before yourselves, uh, before ourselves, through forgiveness, through mercy, through love, through suffering. Those are our weapons. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, We are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Divine power. These are God's weapons. We are in a spiritual battle and our weapons are prayer, the word of God, faith, love, the power of God's spirit, and even the Lord's table right here as we come to equip our hearts to battle, to wage war against unbelief and the sin that still lingers in us. We commit to using God's means with the assurance that he will fight for us. And finally, just like Israel had a great shout at Jericho, and like Jesus gave a great shout on the cross, so we too have a great shout, and one that will make the walls of ungodliness fall, and that is the proclamation of the good news. That is the message of Jesus, the gospel, the news of what has been done for you through the work of Jesus Christ. So again, where are you right now? Where are you losing hope? Where in your life are you slowly just slipping into cynicism or apathy or, or bitterness or hopelessness? God's calling you to be silent, to persevere in faith that he's working even though your eyes can't see it, and to rest and to watch, to be watchful and watch him fight for you. He's already fought the greatest battle for you on the cross. Do you think he will leave you now? Do you think do we really think God will leave us now? No. He says he will never leave us or forsake us. And take heart, we may not hear the walls of ungodliness shaking as we look to what's going on in the world and social issues and politics or whatever, whatever you experience in your life where you are getting hopeless and you just you seem to want to give up. You seem to get cynical. You don't hear the walls shaking. Rest assured, they will fall down. The walls of ungodliness will fall down. Jesus says he will come back and destroy anything that stands in the way of his kingdom coming in its fullness along with all of the things that bring us pain, and he will replace them with everlasting joy and even crown us with everlasting joy. And so uh, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Will you please join me in prayer? Father, uh, I I pray that you would increase our faith. Um, We are easily deceived by what our eyes see. Increase our faith in the knowledge that you are working all things out for your people, for your church, for your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you would equip us by your spirit to be obedient. I pray that you would rid out out any cynicism or apathy or bitterness that's in our hearts now in those areas in our lives and grant us that we can see the goodness of the cross more clearly in our Savior. Quiet our fears and our doubts. And God, I pray right now, uh, that even as we come to your table, by your spirit, you will break down the walls that have built in our hearts, even this week, as we come this morning. Father, uh, do that work. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Thank you guys for sticking with us. No, know we went over today, but we figure we're having lunch, and nobody wants to eat when it still says 10 on your watch. You need to eat when it says 11. Uh, but do appreciate your patience. Um, some instructions, I know, as we do, for those of you who've been here before, uh, we usually go out this way and come in through the front doors of the Fellowship Hall. I'm sure there's a buffet table or something there, but instead of going this way, go this way, get your kids, and then come on back around. Uh, and because we ran over today, uh, say thank you to the Children's Ministry volunteers, uh, because they've been with your kids all this time, so... <laughs> Tell them thank you, in the spirit of gratitude. Uh, if your faith is in Jesus, this is the promise that as you go, he goes with you. Uh, it's a, another reminder, as Jeff has given us, as the word has given us, as we've sung this morning, it's a reminder that uh, he goes with us as you face battle, uh, as you do the life of faith uh, in this wilderness that we call the world. So receive it uh, and take it as that promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.